in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. We're going to be diving into a little bit, uh, there's, a, there's a shift that happens in this letter, and we're right in the middle of it. So Paul, just for context, Paul wrote this letter to a church, people like you and me that lived in the first century. Uh, and, and he wrote to this church in Ephesus, it was a booming port city. Um, there was commerce and temples and worship of gods and busyness and all kinds of stuff, much of which we experience even to this day. Uh, and th- those things, like today, were real threats to the church in the first century. Uh, it's not harder to follow Jesus in 2022. It was equally hard, if not more hard, in the first century. And, and so we're challenged like they are with uh, threats to be moved away from following Jesus. And Paul writes to this church that he loved with deep affection to encourage them to stay the course, to encourage them to not, not lose heart, to encourage them to remember the gospel. And they encourage them to allow the gospel actually to take root in their lives. And so um, we enter this moment where there's a transition happening between chapter 3 and chapter 4, which will lead to my first point. I got three first this morning. First is pretty basic, but it's pretty essential for us. Ephesians 1 through 3 becomes the fuel for Ephesians 4 through 6. And so we enter into this pragmatic side of this letter. The first half is orthodoxy. Understanding what you believe about God's necessary doctrines of truth that are critical to understanding Jesus and his grace and how he's pursued us. And then chapter 4 through 6 is orthopraxy, how that actually plays out practically within our lives. And so faith is not just something that happens on Sunday. Faith actually overtakes our life if we seriously want to follow Jesus. And Paul understood that. And so he laid out uh, the doctrines of what we believe around who Christ is and how he's changed our lives. And then the orthopraxy, how that actually plays out really practically within our lives. And so the first one to three is about the calling, and then four through uh, six is about walking in a manner worthy of that calling. And so we'll read verse one. We got three sections that we're going to read. The first one's the shortest. And so in verse one, it says this, chapter four, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So again, this is a transitional verse. For anybody that's gone through any type of communication, specifically teaching, preaching, uh, there's always an emphasis of emphasizing the therefore. What's the therefore? And so the therefore is a transitional word that's communicating some what just happened. We're translating that into what's now taking place. And so in light of everything that, what, that has just been said, in light of the fact that God's pursued, in light of the fact that God's Love has destined us for adoption. In light of God's redemption, God's forgiveness, in light of God's promised Holy Spirit, in light of the rich mercy that chased us down when we were dead in our sins, in light of God's exceeding kindness, in light of God's great, great, great stabilizing love, we're now invited to walk it out. That's the point here. Religion would tell us that you have to do X, Y, and Z, to prove that you deserve love. And the gospel of grace would say, you've already been given everything. Walk it out. And that's what Paul's saying here. In light of everything that's already been said, the grace of our Lord Jesus, how he's pursued and reconciled and ransomed, the call now is just to walk out who you already are. You're now living in a new reality that changes your old reality. So in that therefore, Paul's saying, enter into it. Christians in Ephesus, with all the temptations and hurdles and difficulties that you experience, enter into the new reality that God's ransomed you 
into. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Walk in a manner that makes sense to the calling you have been called into. Allow your adoption and your rescue to actually make sense in how you live out your life. Walk it out. Again, therefore is a significant bridge. So if we fast forward into all the details of Ephesians 4 through 6, and we don't remember the foundation of Ephesians 1 through 3, we miss the point of the letter. And so that therefore is so critical for us to go back to over and over again. Don't forget where you've come from. Don't forget that you've been adopted. Don't forget how significant God's rich grace is. Don't forget how great Jesus' love for you is. And if we can be honest, we do move away from it right? Do we, are you guys like me that have the, I know the band just walked in, so a lot of beautiful people just, just walked in, but, but stay with me here. Stay with me. Uh, and uh, That happens with band, and that happens with babies. Always, I see everybody's eye just like disappear. It's like, all right, it's fine. I'll just keep moving. Um, but if we can be honest, we have the tendency to move away from the gospel. We have a tendency to enter into this space of trying to pr- prove ourselves to each other, to ourselves, to God. And the challenge is don't give in to that. Don't bypass the gospel as if it's a doorway. The gospel is not a doorway we walk through that we once needed to believe and now we don't need to believe. The gospel is the foundation that we stand on that defines us all of our days until we see Jesus face to face. We seek for security. We seek for worth and value and Uh, identity from others and control. And Paul is saying, don't do it. Don't give in to that. Don't forget everything that was just mentioned. Don't forget the brilliant way the gospel was laid out to us. See, Ephesians 1 through 3 fuels how we live out our lives. And so in the following few chapters, we're going to see a few things. And we want to not forget that Ephesians 1 through 3 um, reminds us of those things. So for example, we're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about sex and sexuality. Those things are tethered to Ephesians 1 through 3. We're going to talk in the upcoming weeks about how we relate to our past. Don't forget Ephesians 1 through 3. We're going to talk about how we approach parenting. Don't forget Ephesians 1 through 3. We're going to talk about how uh, work, and, and we're going to talk about how we respond to alcohol and how we approach the devil. And all of those things are directly related to how we understand how God has ransomed us into his family and how we are now a distinct people. Ephesians 1 through 3 becomes the fuel for Ephesians 4 through 6. Second thought, our character with one another is formed by the gospel. Let's read Ephesians 4, 2 through 6. It says this, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So there's four ways we just read uh, where character changes, where our character changes because of Ephesians one through three. The first one we see is uh, the character trait and virtue of humility naturally overflows as we more deeply understand the gospel that we see in Ephesians 1 through 3. So he talks about humility and all humility. See, if we are here by grace alone, 
it means one thing, that no one got here by their own works, which means there's no room for arrogance within the church. Like, if we understand that we are all on level playing field, regardless of your past, and if you grew up hyper-religious, or if you grew up hyper-irreligious, that regardless, we are all on the same playing field, and we are all defined by one thing that is grace. It only produces humility. Pride comes in when we begin to think that we did it on our own. When we begin to think that we begin to take the baton from Jesus in our own work or in our own efforts, our own career or our resume, and now we have something to prove to the world, we have something to show for ourselves, pride now begins to creep in. But Paul says, with all humility, remembering the gospel, humility is a natural virtue, which removes one thing that separates us from each other, which again is pride. Humility in the first century was a despised value. Like in the first century, humility was detestable. It was not something that was seen as a virtue of honor. Power and force was where authority was held. Flaunting with what you have and how you got there was the thing that was promoted in the first century. And Jesus came on the scene and he redefined power in a way that I don't think we understand the depths by which Jesus has changed the course of human history on every front. But he came on the scene and he said, the first should be last, and the last should be first. That's wild. That's wild today, where humility is now like seen everywhere in self-help stuff and everywhere in like leadership development stuff. But in the first century, where humility was detestable and Jesus comes in and he says, no, I didn't come to uh, be served. I came to serve and lay my life down as a ransom for many. He had all the power in the world and yet he laid down his life. He said the first will be last, last will be first. He redefined what power was and that is humility. In the grace of Jesus, he redefines humility for us. See, we don't need to prove ourselves with our own arrogance because we have everything we need. If we believe Ephesians 1 through 3, that we've been ransomed and adopted with love and we've been pursued and the great love of Jesus has chased us down and the kind mercy of Jesus has, has pursued us, that, that gives us everything we need so we don't need to go out and try to seek to prove ourselves to the world because it's already been given to us. See, pride, it lurks and it brings discord, and that's the, the thing that brings about uh, division, and it causes, um, it is our, our deadly foe, it's the root of every kind of sin, and, and Paul challenges us with all humility, this character trait. Humility is an invitation to think of yourself less in light of the grace of our Lord Jesus. It's, it's what C.S. Lewis says, that, that we're not called to think less of ourselves, but to think of ourselves less. That's what humility is. Not needing to prove ourselves because we've already been given everything we need. So he says, with all humility, that's the first uh, virtue we see here. The second is with gentleness. Gentleness with patience, it says. See, gentleness is not a synonym for weakness, but it's a, a strength that is under control. There's a difference. Oftentimes we see strength, and that's actually birthed from a place of insecurity. But true gentleness is understanding that you have everything you need, and therefore choosing under control to serve and care 
Gentleness is the second virtue. Third is bearing with one another in love. What does it mean to bear with one another? It's to carry a weight, right? It's to carry, it's to support and to bring care and to make sure someone doesn't feel like they're carrying something on their own. And again, in light of Ephesians 1 through 3, God has treated us in this way. He is the one who's born or he bears with us all of the things that we carry. He has even borne uh, born with us all of our sin and shame and in return given us new life. It says, do likewise. Humility, gentleness, bear with one, or, one another in love. There's a difference between bearing one another um, with frustration, with passive aggressiveness, you know, like you, you bear with somebody, but they make sure, you make sure they know that you don't like it. But it says, bear with one another in love, with a heart of humility. Lastly, it says, to eager, eager to maintain unity. And God has unified his creation. He's unified the church. He's unified Jew and Gentile now together as one. And Paul says, eagerly seek that out. Don't, turn, don't, don't shift back to your former ways. Recognize that God is redeemed and now unified and now be eager to walk that out. There's an intentional pursuit of unity that he's inviting us into. So again, humility, gentleness, love, and they're all relational dynamics. Again, faith isn't just a Sunday gig and then life is the rest of the week. We want to blow that thing out of the water that faith actually slowly integrates into every fabric of who we are relationally, emotionally, intellectually, uh, vocationally. All of those components are shaped by our faith. And Paul's saying that relationally, the gospel changes you. It changes how you approach one another. As we experience Ephesians 1 through 3, we live different and it slowly, as it gets into our bones, begins to shape us. As we sit in front of the scripture and we allow the truths of God's love and care and kindness to wash us over and over and over again, it begins to shape how we interact with others. See, the way to experience this is to abide with Jesus. If we want to experience gentleness, humility, and love, it doesn't happen on the fly. It doesn't happen separate from Jesus. It happens as we abide with him. See, our connection to God and his story is essential to walk this out. The, the fruit of the spirit, the, the, the fruit of Jesus comes from abiding with Jesus. And so as we experience the truths that we see in Ephesians 1 through 3, it slowly begins to change us in a way that's beautiful and uh, redemptive. So we see here, again, as the second point, that our character with one another is formed by the gospel. Third thing I want us to consider, Paul encourages us to consider, is that we have been given diverse gifts, and those gifts are helping us grow into maturity. Let's read this chunk. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro from, by the waves and carried about by every kind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So in this text, we, we get a handful of things that I think are pretty important for us. First, uh, he begins by saying that grace was given. In Ephesians 1 through 3, we see that grace was given, and that was for salvation, that was for uh, redemption, that was for God bringing about his mercies and, and adoption. And here, there's a, there's a more specific grace that was given, and that was for the gifting of the church. Unique gifts that Jesus gave to us. Paul mentioned Psalm 68, and it's a reference um, that he brings in here about how Christ ascended. Well, in this text, it's that he ascended and he gave his gifts, and then he clarifies that first he descended, and then he ascended, and he brought about gifts to his church. So he gave gifts. So let's break this down, these verses down in four parts. In verse 11, it says that he gave gifts. In chapter 12, it's, or verse 12, it says that he gave gifts to equip the saints. So he gave gifts to equip the saints. Third, he gave gifts to equip the saints for the building up of, of the body. And lastly, if you play out the progression, he gave gifts to equip the saints for the building up of the body. And we see in verse 13, until we see the uh, maturity of the church. So here's the deal. Each of these are essential that he just shared in these verses. And if we don't understand or we don't recognize that we have gifts, this whole thing implodes. Like it's really important for us to understand that we all have gifts that are necessary for the flourishment of our world and the building up of the body of Christ. See, if we settle for the notion that church is about listening to someone speak and hearing someone sing, we will not grow and the church will suffer. If we simply see church as a place we show up to, we hear something, and we leave, and that we're not actively a part of it, the whole church, we suffer. This has been the model in many churches for decades, and it has to change. This model of coming, not bringing about my own peace, kind of sitting in passivity, I don't offer anything, I come, listen, leave, and I don't bring my portion. You suffer as a part of the body, and we suffer because we don't have you. It's as if we cut off a pinky. It's, it's really, that's the way the, the, the New Testament describes it, that we all need, every one of you, we need you. If you are part of our community, we need you in the unique giftings that you bring to the table. So convinced that this version of Sunday morning Christianity, of going, listening, leaving, is dying. I pray that it's dying. We have many churches that function in that way, and it must not be so. Because the vision of maturity will never happen if we don't buy into the fact that we all bring something unique. Every one of you, even you, we all, like don't bypass 
It's not for the person next to you. It is you. You bring something to the table that is necessary for the body. So the question is, what are some of your gifts? What are some of your gifts? Some of you have no idea what they are. And we need to talk through that. So email me, and I'd love to grab coffee with you. Start there. For others of you, you think your gifts are superior to others, and that's an issue. And for others of you, you have views of your gifts that are inferior. And so you stay back, and you stay passive, because you don't think that your gifts are as important as somebody else's. So whether you don't know what your gifts are, you think really highly of your gift, or you think very lowly of your gift, we all need to understand that all of our gifts matter so that we can flourish together. So again, in all of those areas, we have some work to do. But you have been wired by God not to be a puppet, but with distinct, unique gifts. Your story plays into that. Your wiring plays into that. Your passions play into that. And all of those components make up who you are, how you're wired, and how God has called you and how he's gifted you by his grace. John Stott says this, we are not to imagine that every Christian is an exact replica of each other, of every other, as if we had all been mass-produced in some celestial factory. On the contrary, the unity of the church, far from being boringly mon monotonous, is exciting in its diversity. There's reference of that here in, in what would be called the apes, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. This isn't the only gift assessment test Actually, there's, there's one of several in the New Testament. I find that all of the New Testament gift tests are, are important and helpful. There actually are a few um, uh, tests outside the Bible that are also helpful. Myers-Briggs is extremely helpful in understanding who we are and how we're wired. Strength Finder is extremely helpful in knowing who you are and how you're wired. Uh, all of those can be helpful, but we are all gifted in a variety of ways, all of us. No, there's no, uh, none that are superior, no gifts that are superior than others, some that are more behind the scenes than others, but all are necessary for the building up of the body. Again, he gave gifts to all, not just to pastors that stand on a stage, but to all of us. He gave gifts to equip the saints for the building up of the body unto the maturity of the church. So these gifts translate in both ministry and life. Most of you may not have gifts that lead you to full-time ministry. Most of you don't. But all of us have gifts that Christ has given to us that are necessary for these things. There's not like spiritual gifts and non-spiritual gifts. Again, that's sacred-secular. That's like seeing faith on a Sunday and then seeing life on Monday through Saturday. He's given us all gifts, and they all are necessary for our life. We have to remove that barrier of sacred-secular, or we will uh, end up making this pretty wonky. So again, there's a, I want to break down these, this five-fold um, ministry here, and I want to reimagine these gifts by removing the divide of sacred and secular. There's a guy named Alan Hirsch, and him and his team put together some books that have been really helpful uh, one book called Shaping of Things to Come, and, and then they talk about um, modernizing in a way I think it was really helpful, which removes kind of that sacred-secular divide in how we view this five-fold ministry. I just want to consider it with you for a minute. Uh, the first being apostles. Apostles mean sent one, and in the New Testament, um, 
the big A, uppercase A apostle, was anyone who saw the resurrected Jesus. So if you think about it, Paul's writing to a church in Ephesus that is nowhere close to Jerusalem. It's on the other side of Turkey, and the eastern side of Turkey is connecting to uh, Israel. It's on the other side of Turkey, far away. Almost probably everybody in this church who read this had not seen the resurrected Jesus. And he says there's apostles among you, which I would call little a apostles, not big a apostles. And in it, the way that I would break down, the way that Alan Hirsch breaks this down, is there's an emphasis for apostles as, as ones who are visionary, ones who are pioneering, ones who are engaging new initiatives, ones who are seeking expansion in different areas for the betterment of the world and the body of Christ. So the examples of this would be entrepreneurs, I would see as apostles, having that little a apostle gift, or explorers or church planters. All of those are, are, are cross-cultural workers that are engaging new territory. All of those things, uh, sacred and secular divide, uh, the wall being removed, that would be an apostolic type gift. Second would be prophets. And again, I would call this little p prophet. Big P prophet would be Old Testament prophets. They heard the voice of God. They declared the voice of God to Israel, to the people of that day. You know, God still speaks and he still moves by his spirit for sure. He does so through the gift of prophecy. But suffice it to say, this is a little P prophet, not big P prophet. But the emphasis here is one who declares truth and holiness who invites people to be drawn back to God, obedience to God and his ways. They're particularly attuned to God and his truth for today and are zealous for the holiness of God. They question the status quo. They bring correction in challenging the dominant assumptions we inherit from culture, insisting for communities to obey God. And they do so for the betterment of the world and the building up of the body of Christ. We see little a apostles, little p prophets. We see evangelists. You know, when you think of evangelists, again, everything's like so spiritualized in our, our minds. We think of bullhorns and track givers. It's like, I'm not, I don't want to go door to door with tracks, and so I'm not an evangelist. Well, hold up. Maybe, but, but maybe not. Evangelists would be, one's emphasis here would be drawing people in. It's this gift of being able to draw people in, be able to draw communities in for the betterment of the world and for the flourishment of the body of Christ. I mean, salesmen would be evangelists. That would be a, a secular gift that plays out in both uh, arenas. Public relations rep representatives, people who gather people. That would be a gift of one who has an evangelistic gifting. Fourth, shepherds or pastors. Shepherds or pastors are, are ones who care for the betterment, uh, care for people in the world and bringing about the betterment of the world in the body of Christ. So examples would be, of course, pastors, but counselors, social workers, those in caregiving um, professions, all of those would be shepherds and having the gift of shepherd. Lastly, teachers. Teachers have the ability to communicate and bring clarity to truths, again, for the betterment of the world and the body of Christ. Again, examples would, of course, be teachers, but also professors and trainers. Again, if we remove the wall, we begin to see that some of these gifts play out really practically in our day-to-day -day life, but we must Break the sacred-secular divide if we want to see the church function fully. Alan Hirsch says, The church's inherent capacity to mature is inextricably, 
inextricably, I knew I was going to struggle with this word, inextricably interwoven with its capacity to foster a full-fledged, apast, apostles, prophets, evangelists, upper teacher, style ministry and leadership system, meaning that we're not going to experience the maturity that we're designed to experience if we do not function in our giftings. So your gifts matter. And if you don't know what they are, then we need to engage that. Nothing wrong with that. But it's a step. Self-awareness would be the first step. And sit with a friend and say, what do you know about me? Help me understand like what some of my gifts are. Or again, reach out to me and I'd love to work with you in some of the, uh, some of the assessment tests that are there. I'm reminded of Pete Scazzaro's quote that says, I mentioned this several weeks ago, but the vast majority of us go to our graves without knowing who we are. We unconsciously live someone else's life or at least someone else's expectations for us. This does violence to ourselves, our relationship with God, and ultimately to others. It matters. It matters enough that Paul would say, God, Jesus has given you gifts, given you gifts for the equip, to equip the saints, given you gifts to equip the saints for the building up of the body unto maturity of the church. See, part of our work and kind of understanding who we are is to look back and to see who we have become and who we are becoming. We have moments along the way that, that are catalysts for us. I mean, I think of the Apostle Peter. When he had this conversation with Jesus in Matthew 16, it began with, with Jesus asking his, his core disciples. He says, who do people say that I am? Some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist. And he said, but, but who do you say that I am? He said, um, he said that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus looked at Peter and said, uh, on this rock, you are a rock, and on this rock I'm going to build my church. This was a moment that shaped the rest of Peter's life. He looked back at that moment over and over again, remembering that this had shaped the core of who he was and what he was called to. And you're not called to be Peter, but you have callings and gifts that God has wired and put in you. And the question is, what is that? What are those gifts? Let's figure that out because it matters so that we can flourish and see the church grow into maturity together. It is Jesus who invites us to follow him and he becomes our guide with community by our side to help us grow into the good works that Jesus has called us into. So the point of the gifts is, is summarized well by C.S. Lewis. Uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you, if you don't recall or if, if you don't have an imagination uh, and don't like reading this kind of stuff, um, so there's a story of a place called Narnia. And in Narnia, there's a witch who put a curse upon that land. And uh, the witch's design was to kill Narnia. And, uh, but these four little kids entered into this other world and, and were a part of the redemptive plan of Narnia. And so in doing that, uh, they hear of this lion named Aslan. And Aslan had come to break the curse of the witch in Nar Narnia. The, the curse was that it was always winter and never Christmas. And so in Aslan coming and bringing about redemption and, and destroying the curse, there's a uh, one who's called Father Christmas. He's like the Santa Claus of the story. But his name is Father Christmas, and he comes and he gives, not just gifts like we think of in Santa today, but like legit gifts that he gives to Peter, the, 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 the children. And these gifts he gives, I'll, I'll read it like this. It says, uh, Father Christmas has come, spring is coming, and Aslan is on the move. Peter, Adam's son, said Father Christmas. Here, sir, said Peter. These are your presents, was the answer, and they are tools, not toys. 
The time to use them is perhaps near at hand. Bear them well. And then he gives Peter a sword. And then he gives his sister uh, Susan a ivory horn. And then he gives Lucy a special bottle. Now, if they sat and they compared their gifts to one another, I mean, which gifts would, would be dominant? Maybe the sword because it was longer and could potentially do more damage. But all of them were necessary. And he says that they're not toys to be tinkered with. They're tools to be used for battle. And we all have gifts that God has given to us, each one of us unique, none inferior, none superior, all unique in humility. We embrace them together and we need them so that we can grow together as a body and actually see maturity take place in our lives. So again, he's put things in you on purpose. Maybe things you've stuffed. Maybe you don't think you're a leader or you don't think you have certain gifts or you, you just kind of see your gifts as inferior. Your gifts matter. You have dreams, you have hopes, aspirations, gifts, strengths, callings all within you. And we want to be curious to figure out what they are so that we can actually obey Jesus and what he's called us to. Each and every one Jesus has called to himself has given grace to function in and and contribute to the society around us. So he's given gifts to equip the saints for the building up of the body until the maturity of the church. That's the vision that Jesus has for his church, maturity. His vision for the church is that we would actually grow into maturity. We wouldn't be children all of our days, but we'd actually grow in our faith and as we interact with one another. This is the invitation, and that's our vision. We exist to see lives transformed with the gospel and our city renewed. We want to see a deep work of transformation happen in our lives at a soul level. And it's so important for us to understand our gifts so we can get there together. You know, we long for the church to grow and for us to slowly, slowly, slowly become more like Jesus. Not clones, but that Jesus would be formed in us shape us in such a way that we are empowered to walk this life out in what he's called us to. So again, as we come out of Ephesians 1 through 3, we enter into Ephesians 4, we see that we're called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that which you've been called. We're called to to see this invitation of character, and we're called to see the, the calling that Jesus invites us into. So friends, I invite you into that, into that space. And truly, if you're confused or you feel like, I don't know, Or maybe I've stuffed, honestly, maybe I've stuffed my gift to be inferior for decades and I don't know how to see my gifts as a strength. I would love to talk with you. I would love to sit with you. I'd love to grab coffee with you. This is really important for us as a body. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thanks for moments to be challenged and edified and encouraged. Thanks for this text. Thanks for your active vision to see us grow up, to not stay where we are. Lord, you know where we are. You know the the battles that we feel in our soul. Maybe for some, gosh, I think my gift is the best. Lord, I pray that you'd bring humility. Lord, for some of us that feel uh, just a, a deep sense of inferiority that we don't have what it takes or we aren't good enough or our past doesn't allow us to do this or whatever it might be, Lord, I pray that you would empower some, bring courage to some. Lord, we thank you for 
the way that you are moving in this community. I just pray that you continue to do a deep work here. And above all, that Christ would be honored, worshiped, and loved. God, we give you thanks. Draw near to us as we partake in communion together. Amen.